encourage you guys, are, uh, as we're going through, to be reading these passages, to be familiar with them. Um, encourage you, R.A. Torrey's book, The Baptism of the Spirit, great little book. Um, they Found the Secret um, by Edmund, great record of familiar Christians you all know that were effective in Christian ministry, but then had a point in their life where they had a deeper experience with the Holy Spirit that profoundly affected what they did for the Lord. And those of you who want to dig a bit deeper, D.A. Carson's book from Cambridge, great scholar, called Showing the Spirit, and he works his way through Acts uh, chapter 1 and 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, he takes the the whole issue of the, the debate in the church over the, the gifts for today and so forth. He breaks it down. He probably does the best job in 1 Corinthians 13 I've read. So I encourage you to grab those things on your own. Remember, as we go through the book of Acts, 59 times the Holy Spirit is mentioned in these 28 chapters. So... A remarkable, certainly, and a primary influence above all others, probably in the book, except the word, which is his word. Um, this is the record, Luke says, of all that Jesus, he had written before Theophilus, all that Jesus began to do and to teach. This is the record of what he's continuing to do and teach. And it is a place we're living now. Certainly, he is continuing to do things in our lives, in the church today. And he is certainly teaching us about things, looking at the culture we're in and what's happening around us in this world. Um, read through part of Hudson Taylor's testimony the last time we started here. Um, D.L. Moody, it says, in Chicago, I'll just give you a little portion of it, there were two godly women, Mrs. Sarah A. Cook and her friend, Mrs. Hawfox, who attended Moody's meetings in Farwell Hall, and on whose heart there came a burden that this precious man of God be filled with the Spirit. On more occasions than one, Moody made reference to them as he did at a meeting in Glasgow. I can myself go back almost 12 years and remember two holy women who used to come to my meetings. It was delightful to see them there, for when I began to preach, I could tell by their expression in their faces they were praying for me. At the close of the Sabbath, one evening at the services, they would say to me, we have been praying for you. And I said, why don't you pray for the people? And they answered, you need power. I need power, I said to myself. Why, I thought I had power. I had a large Sabbath school and the largest congregation in Chicago. He says, they poured out their hearts that I might receive the anointing of the Holy Ghost. And there came a great hunger in my soul. And I knew not what it was. I began to cry as never before. The hunger increased. I really felt that I did not want to live any longer if I could not have this power for service. I kept on crying all the time that God would fill me with his spirit. My heart was not in the work of begging. I could not appeal. I was crying all the time that God would fill me and his spirit, with his spirit. Well, one day in the city of New York, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. Paul had an experience of which he didn't speak for 14 years. I can only say that God revealed himself to me, and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. I went to preaching again. The sermons were no different. I didn't present any new truths, and yet hundreds began to be converted. I would not now be placed back where I was before that blessed experience if you should give me all the world. It would be as those small duffs in the balances. 
The sermons were no different, but the servant was. And you read through his testimony, it says, Doubtless this unlettered New England country boy became what he was by the grace of God. The secrets of D.L. Moody's power were, first, in a definite experience of Christ's saving grace, he has passed out of death into life, and he knew it. Secondly, he believed in the divine authority of scriptures. The Bible was to him the voice of God, and he made it resound as such in the consciences of men. Thirdly, he was baptized with the Holy Spirit, and he knew it. It was to him as definite an experience as his conversion. Fourthly, he was a man of prayer. He believed in a mighty, unfettered God. Fifthly, he believed in the works, in works, in ceaseless effort, in wise provision, in um, power of organization, of public uh, and publicly expressing his love for Christ and the supernatural work through which he brought him. So you can read through. They have all of these different testimonies of all of these folks. Hudson Taylor, Samuel Logan Brengel, John Bunyan, Amy Carmichael, Oswald Chambers, uh, Charles Grandison, Finney, Adoniram uh, Judson. You, you go down, you know these names, and these are all people who say at a point in their lives they had a much different experience with the Holy Spirit that altered their ministry. Were they indwelt by the Spirit? Well, of course they were when they were saved, baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. But being baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ is different than being baptized with the Spirit by Jesus Christ and the Spirit coming upon us for power. The Old Testament, Samson, David, Samuel, so many, the Spirit came upon them for ministry. The Spirit never indwelt them. They were never born again. They never lifted their heads to heaven and said, Abba, Father, as we are able to do. But we are as in need of God's unction, God's filling, God's spirit falling upon us, filling us and refilling us as any generation of the church. And probably more looking at the world we're living in and the things that we are facing regularly now. So we come to the book of Acts. We begin to see the way these men spent their last days with Jesus, what they heard from him the provision they made for Judas being lost in the, the College of Apostles. And we finally come then to the second chapter, well known to the church, well known to most of us. It says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one account, one accord in one place. And suddenly there came the sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled all the house where they were sitting and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire and it sat upon each of them and they were filled with the Holy Ghost so it gives us this picture and it tells us now the day of Pentecost was fully come the big feasts for Israel were Passover, which was not a Levitical feast. It was instituted long before Leviticus was written and the Levitical feasts were given. It was the feast of deliverance that pre-shadowed the coming of Christ on the cross. It was a mandatory feast. Then there was Pentecost, 50 days later, hence Penta, the pen, pentagram, the pentagon, five-sided Pentecost. It's called the Feast of Weeks because it's seven weeks of seven days, 49 days, and then the 50th day, the feast itself. They were fulfilled literally. And what it says here, when the feast of Pentecost, it says, was fully come. Luke only uses that two more times. One is when the boat is being filled with water and the disciples are in the storm. The other time when Jesus says it was time for him to go up to Jerusalem 
and it was that it says that time had fully come. Here it says that the Feast of Pentecost now had fully come. It doesn't just mean the 50 days. It's much deeper and broader than that. Look, the Feast of Passover had fully come in uh, in Egypt when they were delivered. They took, they slaughtered the lamb, they put the blood on the doorpost, on the lentils, they slaughtered the lamb in what was called the sop, which is an Egyptian word, which is a trench between the two doors, so when it flooded, the water didn't come into their dwellings. You had the picture of a lamb, the, the blood on the two doorposts, and on the lentils, you had a lamb slaughtered between two crosses, no doubt a remarkable picture something that looked forward, and, and their lives were spared as the angel of death went through. God said, when I see the blood on the door, I will pass over. didn't say when you feel good about it. didn't say when you understand it theologically. He didn't stand when you're inside and you stop chewing your fingernails and worry about whether I'm telling the truth. He said, when I see the blood, I will pass over. And what a picture of the gospel. So when Jesus comes on Passover and he is offered as the Lamb of God, the Passover then had fully come. And he said, don't do this anymore. From now henceforth, you do this in remembrance of me. The full meaning of it had come. The next day was a Sabbath. Jesus' Passover began Thursday night, crucified Friday, a Sabbath on Saturday. And Sunday then was the Feast of First Fruits, which was attached, or unleavened bread became attached to Passover. But that was the feast when the priest took the first shock of grain, usually barley because it was harvested early, and he came into the temple and he waved a shock of grain, the first fruits, in front of the Lord in the temple, and it looked forward to the great ingathering 50 days later on Pentecost. So you had the feast of first fruits fully come, and we're told that Jesus was the first fruits of those who sleep, and you and I will be part of that great ingathering. Fifty days later, then you have Pentecost, usually on a Sunday. By the second century, church always celebrated on Sunday. There's argument about that early, but the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, specifically says that it's to be celebrated on the Sabbath, verses 15, 16, and 17, if you're wondering. It's to be celebrated on the Sabbath, after the Passover, and the Sadducees, who were the ruling party in this day of the book of Acts, said it was always the weekly Sabbath spoken of there, which then would always be a Saturday. And if you started counting 49 days then from Sunday, the Feast of First Fruits, it brought you seven weeks later to Sunday. It was fulfilled Saturday. And then the, the Feast of Pentecost would fall on a Sunday. So this is Sunday. It's interesting. Jerusalem is more crowded now on Pentecost than it was on Passover. Because Passover was always March, April, and the shipping lanes were more dangerous. Uh, yet the Romans had learned from the Phoenicians, as did the Greeks, how to navigate the Mediterranean world. But travel was not as safe at that point in time. So... Though it was a mandatory feast, there were less people that came from foreign countries, Jews, to get to Jerusalem for the Passover. But when Pentecost came, because it was, you know, more summer, it, it, it was crowded. So this is a crowded feast. They've come from all over. And now the day that Pentecost looked forward to, the birth of the church, the, the great ingathering to begin, it was fully come. It was the day of Pentecost, and its meaning, and what it really was now, is on the front page. It has fully come, it says. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, it says they were all, it's emphatic here, all of them with one accord. We talked about that last time, seven times in the book of Acts relating to believers and it has the idea as we should be this evening one accord of one heart it speaks of a pathos to a passion to it's, it's visceral it isn't just mental that they felt and they enjoyed 
and they were moved as they were together to worship and so forth. So they're all of one accord, it says then, in one place. And suddenly there came the sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all of the house. So the place now is called a house, all of the house, where they were sitting. I appreciate the fact that they're sitting because they're praying. This tells us that. They've been gathering every day to pray. I personally enjoy sitting while I pray. So I don't have to be condemned because I'm not standing. I'm not kneeling. I like to get up early in the morning with my Bible and a cup of coffee, and I like to sit. Particularly now, this time of the year, I love to just sit in the yard. It was hot this morning, but I love to sit in the yard. And the sky is blistering blue early, you know, and it's just great to be there and listen to creation and spend time with Jesus. And, you know, he walks with me, he talks to me, he tells me that I am his own. You know, I come to the garden, the voice I hear falling on my ear, none other has ever known. You know, he speaks and the sound of his voice is so sweet that the birds hush their singing and the melody he gives to me. It's within my heart, it's ringing. That's all real to me when I sit alone with him. So it's wonderful for me to see the apostles and the B-apostles, the whole crew here, sitting and praying. There are times that I kneel, there are times... I pray while I'm driving for the other people, not for myself. Uh, but this is just wonderful to see them. They're, sit, they're sitting down. They're in this place, one place. Uh, some try to say it's a house adjoined to the temple. It seems like Luke would be more specific if it was. Are they in the courtyard of the house? We're not told. They seem to be in the open where others can hear. Wherever it is... The sound that's made, when they begin to speak in other tongues, the crowds that are gathered hear that, and they're drawn together. So I like this. It says, suddenly. They're not expecting this. Jesus said they should pray, they should wait for the promise of the Father, which John spoke of, the baptism of the Spirit. And they're praying, they're in this place, they're sitting, and it says, and suddenly... There came a sound. That's significant. And it comes from heaven. And it's the sound of, it says, as, it's not literally from a wind, but it's as of a rushing, mighty wind. That's a rushing, violent wind. And it filled all the house. So there was no wind. It doesn't say that. They didn't feel anything. There was no sensation in that respect. It was just the sound. And it says this sound was powerful, like a violent wind. And it says that it came from heaven. The winds they were used to in that day would be horizontal, whether it was the Siracos, the winds that would blow from the south and so forth. This wind, this noise of this wind is coming from heaven, no doubt caused them all to look up. This sound that they hear, no experience of wind at all. A sound, imagine what that was like. And it's from heaven. And it's of a mush, uh, uh, like a mighty, a violent rushing wind. And the interesting thing there is both in Hebrew, the ruach, and here the Greek word, Wind in both languages can be interpreted breath. In fact, if you look this word up, it's the first definition it gives, breath. And I think this is not the wind of a hurricane. This is the breath of God. In the end of John, chapter 20, verse 22, Jesus had already, it says, breathed upon them and said, receive the Spirit. So the 11, here at least, have already been indwelt by the Spirit, their experience now is the this Holy Spirit coming upon them. For the others that are gathered, is a simultaneous experience where the church is born. They are both indwelt and filled with the Spirit at the same time. It's in this, you know, in this experience where they're together, they're praying, they're sitting, and all of a sudden there's this sound that comes from heaven. You know, they're looking around. There's no wind. There's not that sounds. You know, it's almost, it's like the breath of God. It's coming down upon them where they're gathered there. 
And there appeared then unto them, now it says, cloven tongues like as a fire that sat on each of them. And, and what people think when they read that is forked tongues. They all got little forked tongues sitting on their heads. That's not what it says. It says there appeared unto them cloven. You know what it is to split wood. You're cleaving wood there. It, the word means to divide. It means to, you know, to give out it has the idea of one light coming and then being distributed. So it's not forked tongues sitting on them. It's cloven tongues. I don't know whether it was a big tongue that showed up and then got cloven into a bunch of little tongues. The idea is there's light. Now they can't say it looked like a light bulb, looked like an incandescent bulb. Wow, it looked like a, you know, because they, they never saw any of that. So the only light they know besides the sun is fire. And they said, and, and, and Luke says it was like, he wasn't there, but he had interviewed. It was like this, cloven tongues as a fire. Like this, this light came. There was a sound of the wind, and then there was a visual. And as this light came in the room, it divided, and it sat on every individual. What a picture. And by the way, now look, it's going to say in the next verse that they're filled with the Spirit. That's separate than the sound and the light, the filling of the Spirit. Because this is Pentecost, and the day of Pentecost had fully come, its fulfillment. And this is never repeated. There's many fillings of the Spirit now as we go through the New Testament, but there's never the sound of wind and there's never the cloven tongues. At the end of this second chapter, Peter preaches and it says 3,000 people turn to Christ. And he says, if you turn the promise, you'll receive the promise of the Spirit. And no doubt they were all indwelt with the Spirit when he said that, but there's no sound and there's no light sitting on all of their heads. This was a one-time experience, never repeat it. And look, as we look at it, we get an idea of what it is. It's just incredible, really. This is so miraculous. It's, it says here, when this experience takes place, it says, they were all filled that's passive. They didn't do it. It, it's, it happens to them. They are all filled with the Holy Ghost. And it says here that they began then to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, the remarkable thing as we go here is, look, it's going to tell us about Parthians, Medes, all of these different people that have come for the mandatory feast from all over the Roman world, the Mediterranean world, and the Eastern world. And it tells us here that these folks, as they begin to speak in tongues, as they're given utterance, it says they spoke as the Holy Spirit gave, that's an imperfect tense, as he continued giving them utterance. And the idea is every word they said was given to them. It was not intellectual because they were all speaking a language they had never spoken before. It was from heaven. It was not their doing. It was not their intellect. They didn't get the Rosetta programs and put them on their computer and learn to speak these languages. That's not what's happening here. There's something so miraculous happening. Look, look, we've worked for years with Wycliffe translators, you know, and, and they go through so much and they're so dedicated and they have to, you know, develop sometimes. They'll, they'll go to a people who have a spoken language but don't have a written language. And they have to spend years to try to learn the spoken language. And it means so much to those people when they can finally start to communicate a little bit in their spoken language. And then some of them, because they don't have a written language, then they have to try to develop, and it takes decades sometimes, a written language for this people, and then try to convince them to read it, which most of them don't. They're, they're, they're Bible speakers, you know? 
And in this picture, what the Wycliffe translators take decades to do happens instantaneously. And all of these people from the Mediterranean world hear the wondrous works of God spoken in their own, it says, dialect. It says the language in which we were born, their mother tongue, the idiomatic language with all the nuances. They, and, and they're going to be astounded, as you see. So you, you have to understand this begins to, to happen. We don't know whether the crowd heard the rush of the wind. They evidently didn't have the visual of the, 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 the light on everyone. But now this group that's gathered begins speaking the wondrous works of God in all of these different languages that they don't know. And it says they did it as the Spirit kept giving them utterance, so every word, every sentence is divine. And they don't know the next word they're saying, but it's coming out of their mouths. You know people like that. They don't know the next word they're saying, but it's coming out of their mouths too. But that, that's in a language they think they do know. This is something supernatural that's taking place here. It says they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit continued to give them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. So the first picture we get here, you know, it's interesting that the Holy Spirit gives that to them. They were devout. Somebody can be devout and not born again. You, you probably all have relatives, uh, you know, that are, you know, not born again, but they go to church or they're involved in some other religion and they're devout. The, the Holy Spirit pays that compliment. There were these Jews living in Jerusalem. They were devout and they were from every language. And now the word dwelling there means to be settled down. So first we get a picture of those who had come to Jerusalem, had moved there from all over the world. That's part of their being devout. They have sacrificed to be there in remarkable ways. I remember reading testimonies after Israel's reborn in 1948 of Jewish people that immigrated back to Israel. Some of them said, I had to leave my home. I left my family. I came alone. I came without a cent. I just knew that the Lord was telling me to come back to this land. The first time I went to Israel, I, uh, I had a family next to me, and they were from California. And I remember all their kids were like my kids' age. They were all in those footy pajamas uh, from Sesame Street, you know, Big Bird and Cookie Monster. And they, I knew all the, I knew the, the whole spiel. And uh, started talking to them, and they, and they said, well, we're Jewish. And I said, well, what are you doing? And they said, well, we're moving back to Israel. I said, why? They said, we don't know. I had a great job in you know, the tech industry, and I, one day, and, I, and, and I started feeling on my heart, and I thought, if I tell my wife, she's going to think I've lost my mind. And he said, finally, and she's sitting there shaking her head. You know. Finally, he said, I said to her, honey, I can't get this off my heart. I think we're supposed to go to Israel. She started to cry and said, I was afraid to tell you, but I feel like the Lord was telling me the same thing, you know. And here they are moving back to Israel. They're devout. They weren't born again. So the first picture, and no doubt the Lord loves these people. They've come from all over the world that are dwelling there. Some of them have been, So no doubt then many of the others that have come from those countries will stay with them in their homes and so forth when they come to Jerusalem. It says, now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and they were confounded. They're troubled in their mind, literally, because that every man heard them speak in his own, the, the Greek is dialectos. He hears them speak in his own mother tongue, in his own language, in his own dialect. And they're astounded because they look up and they recognize they're all Galileans. Galilee was a term you used, you know, to insult somebody in that day. These are hicks. They can't even speak, you know, they say shalom, y'all. You know, they can't even speak Hebrew, let alone, you know. And, and, and we're hearing the nuances and the exact idiomatic languages that we grew up, our mother tongue. They're speaking. Look, there's an amazing picture here, okay? 
you have to realize this because we've the charismatic movement, and I'm charismatic, but charismania has taken this gift and put it on the front page. And it's something the church understood because Paul had it corrected in Corinth. Uh, it is something that continued. Um, Paul said, I, you know, I'd rather speak 10 words in a language you understand than 10,000 in tongues that you don't understand. He said, are you longing for gifts? He said, seek that you might prophesy because he who speaks in an unknown tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. So we have this picture. Look, we have people that will come here and be angry because we don't want to, we don't tell them not to talk in tongues on Sunday morning. We've had to interrupt a few people. Had to interrupt the Holy Ghost, they thought, but you know. And you know, and I said, look, you know, um, we believe there's different gifts. We believe pastor teacher is a gift. And while I'm teaching the word, I'm believing that the Lord wants me doing that or I'm running out of here. And, uh, and I believe then there's a gift of the Spirit that's functioning. So why would, if the Holy Spirit is doing one thing, the Holy Spirit who's not schizophrenic, why would he interrupt himself with somebody else seated out there? So, and people get frustrated. Well, I can't talk to tongues or you're grieving the Spirit. Well, look, your problem is you forgot about, you're only here for an hour. You've forgotten about the other six days and 23 hours that you can speak in tongues all you want. And somehow, you know, so if we open up our services to people speaking in tongues, every wild hair for 100 miles would be here to, that never had an audience this big to show off with. But the gift of tongues is legitimate. It's there. You know, so on one side of the coin, we have the charismatics who think that we're grieving the spirit. On the other side, the cessationists, again, they think we're wild. Oh, those Calvary people, they, they, they only imagine what goes on here. They know we're rolling in the aisles and spitting nickels and, you know. And the truth is we're somewhere in the middle. That's where we're supposed to be. That's a great place to be. We're between them. Sadly, and D.A. Carson does the best job, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, those who don't believe the gifts are for today try to say, well, it's, you know, it, it, it says there that gifts are going to cease. So when the canon was completed, now for those of you who don't know, that's not a big gun. The canon is the scriptures. When the scriptures were completed, then the, the gift of tongues passed away. D.A. Carson says, first of all, how could a bunch of carnal Corinthians ever know what the completion of the canon was? That would not make any sense to them at all. And secondly, it says in Corinth, he who speaks in an unknown tongue speaketh unto God and not unto man. It says here they're hearing them speak the wondrous works of God. It says if you speak in an unknown tongue, you do give thanks right well. So he says the word of God is not speaking to God. The word of God, the completion of the canon, is God speaking to man. Why would God speaking to man replace man speaking to God, two different gifts that are going in two different directions? He said it makes no sense at all. All of those things pass away, certainly when the kingdom comes, when the kingdom age comes, which could be right around the corner. And I'm looking for it. And I pray in English and pray in tongues, it comes fast. You know, just you, you look at this picture here, you know, and it's so remarkable because there's none of that abuse. You have this crowd speaking in tongues, but there's purpose to it. Paul has to correct the Corinthian church because they abuse it. Corinth, again, was in an isthmus where people from all over the Roman world would pass through, and evidently the gift functioned in the church there, but it was malfunctioning. Again, and again, those Christians were carnal. They were suing one another. They were famous for fornication or getting drunk at the communion table. So jabbering in tongues has nothing to do with being spiritual. Here, it's an actual gift, and the crowds now are hearing the wondrous works of God uh, in their own dialect, in their own, you know, with the, with the idioms of their own uh, languages. And they were all amazed and they marveled, saying one to another, Behold, 
Think of this. Are not all these which speak Galileans? You can tell by the way they're dressed. These are all hillbillies. And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? We're, it's just, we're here. It's our mother tongue. This is the language we grew up with, all its idiosyncrasies and so forth. How can this be happening? You know, they're, they're amazed. And look, it still happens today. Kathy and I were friends with somebody um, on the West Coast, and uh, she miraculously survived cancer and books written about her walking through the fire. Amazing girl. And uh, she was praying in tongues and there happened to be at that meeting this Greek Orthodox priest. And he came up actually kind of irritated and said, what is this? And, and she said, well, I was just praying in tongues. He said, who told you that prayer? And she said, well, I don't know what I was praying. He said, he said, that was a Greek prayer only taught to Greek Orthodox priests, and the common people don't even know the prayer or get to pray it. And she said, ah, 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 ah. you know, uh, we have friends that were in missionaries in Africa, and they said people got filled with the Spirit there, and one guy started praying English and didn't know English. And he said, well, it's just remarkable to hear and to experience that. So we don't want to grieve the Spirit. We don't want to quench the Spirit. Here's here's one of the, the things that goes wrong, though. Because the gift of tongues, particularly through the charismatic movement, was so prominent, all of the other gifts kind of fell away. I, I used to go to some of the Catholic churches in the area in 1974, 75, you know, and there was the charismatic renewal was taking place. It was a lot of love. Uh, you know, there, there were people talking in tongues all over the place, of course. But it never grew because the word was not being expounded. The scripture wasn't being taught to support those things or order those things or make them function in order. So it just kind of ran out of momentum. It ran out of steam. But there was something real happening there when that was taking place. And tongues just became the prominent thing because that's the thing you were hearing. That was the thing that got goosebumps. Everybody was kind of freaked out hearing that going on. But what about the gift of helps? I'm telling you, this church would not function without the gift of helps. And nobody waves a flag when they do that because they want the reward in heaven. The gifts of administration. You know, you look at the Old Testament, the greatest men in the Old Testament, Abraham wasn't a pastor. He didn't teach Bible studies. He was an administrator. Joseph in Egypt, second most powerful man in the world, come up from nowhere. He wasn't a pastor teaching sermons. He was an administrator. David, an administrator. Solomon, an administrator. Daniel, not a pastor, an administrator. These are men who changed the course of the world because of the Spirit being upon them, not in them like he is in us, but the gifts functioning. You go through Romans 12, there are gifts of helps, there are gifts of you know, mercies, there's gifts of prophecy, there's gifts of, you know, again, we kind of make a joke. If, if I was coughing up here and somebody's come up to time, hand me a bottle of water, but if I was up here coughing and somebody came up with a, a tray of glasses and water and tripped and fell on the steps right there, Somebody with a gift of mercy would come up and say, oh, are you okay? Okay, no, no, I know you went. And somebody with a gift of prophecy would come up, I told you not to do that, you know. Uh, somebody with a gift of teaching would come up and say, now, next time, this is what you need to do. And just take a bow, you know. It's just, isn't it interesting? We're all so different. We all function. But those gifts are the gifts that make the body healthy. Those are the gifts that function behind the scenes. Nobody's getting patted on the back. You go through those different gifts of helps and administration and mercy. And those are the things that make a body healthy. Everyone wants to jabber in tongues because they get an audience or something doing that. It's remarkable. Well, you don't need tongues anymore because now you can just go on, online and paint yourself with muscles and everything else and become somebody or not. But, uh, you know, th there's, there's an abuse of this gift. And, and I think the Lord will bless some of us with it. So in our own privacy, in our own prayer language, we, we can pour out our heart in a different way. And I enjoy that when, when I have opportunity to do that. 
But here, it isn't the gift of tongues that charismania has pushed to the front page. This is the gift of tongues that the Lord has given, and there's a specific purpose here. And people will say, no, those gifts are not for that. You know, you need to look out because if you pray for the gift of tongues, you open yourself up, you may get a demonic spirit, you know. And I'm thinking, what God do you worship? You know, Baal? What are you talking about? Jesus said, you know, which one of you, you know, if, if his son asks him for a loaf of bread, gives him a stone. Here, kid, break your teeth on this. Which one of you, if his kid asks for a fish, gives him a serpent? This is an animal with venom to strike him, to, to take him down. Which one of you gives your son for an egg, if he wants an egg, a scorpion? That all seems crazy, but that's Jesus' point. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You ain't ever going to get demonic tongues. You ain't ever going to get any nonsense from our dad. He already paid the price in the blood of his son to make you his own. We already know he only has the best for us. And there isn't anyone in this room that ever has to be afraid of going to Almighty God and saying, please fill me afresh with your Holy Spirit. It should be a regular practice in our lives. Because the world's out there, and we're outmanned, and we're outgunned without the power of the Spirit. And it ain't going to happen any other way. Isn't it insane? I watch it every day and think, the inmates have taken over the asylum. It is insane. And without, you know, but those people will still respond to genuine. And if there's a genuine move of the Holy Spirit in the church, those people still will respond to that and be touched by that. Because they've got everything that's phony and plastic and has left them empty already. They're speaking in these languages. In this particular scene, Paul says, though I speak in the tongue of men or of angels in Corinth, but here they're speaking in known language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying, Behold, are not all these Galileans? And how hear we, every man, our own tongue, wherein we were born? And it tells us now there were Parthians and Medes. The Parthians were part of Elam, of Persia, towards the southern end. The Medes, the Medes and the Persians, you know, took over the kingdom from Babylon. So Media is still, the Medes, that area is still north of Iraq. They were from that part of the world there, the, the Parthians, the Medes. The Elamites is Persia. You know, Persia was Persia up till the 1930s when they changed it to Iran. But it was Persia for a long time. But if a place changes its name, it doesn't matter if you know they're Elamites. That's the, that's the rock bottom, Elam. Call it one century Persia, call it another century Iran. Doesn't matter, it's Elam. So it says here they were there from Elam. And dwellers in Mesopotamia, the root of that word means between the rivers, and is certainly speaking of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, between the Euphrates and, and the, the Tigris rivers. And look, there are strong communities there. We have the Babylonian Talmud that comes to us 500 years after Christ or so. You have churches when the war took place and our, our men and women were in Iraq, they encountered churches that traced their lineage back to Peter, to the first century, because Peter writes he was there for some time. So these were communities that were full of Jews, like Alexandria, Trypho says in the year 38, that there were over a million Jews living in Alexandria at that point in time. And there were huge Jewish communities in these parts of the world. It tells us here, Elam, dwellers of Mesopotamia. And then it mentions, and Judea. You wouldn't think you have to say that, but the Judeans didn't like the Galileans. And the Judeans spoke Hebrew. And now they're hearing these Galileans who normally spoke Aramaic and couldn't speak Hebrew. They're hearing them speak in their own language. So you had Galileans speaking Hebrew here, which normally didn't happen. The Judeans, 
Cappadocia and Pontus are north of Turkey uh, in, in Asia Minor. It says, Phrygia and Pamphylia are south of Galatia by the water, by the Mediterranean. And it says, and in Egypt, which was Coptic, and some of the earliest churches were there, and in parts of Libya, which we know is a small area west of Egypt on the northern coast of Africa, but the Greeks used the word Libya to describe all of Africa. To the Greeks, if you were an African, you were a Libyan of Libya. Cyrene, where Simon the Cyrene comes from, uh, Tripoli is there in that area today. And strangers, foreigners from Rome, Jews, and proselytes, those who are coming and converting to Judaism out of other religious systems in the world, Crete, the island of Crete off the coast in the Mediterranean of, of uh, Asia Minor, large island, Arabians, the Arabah to the Jews would probably include Saudi Arabia, but it was the desert area of the south, Arabic. We do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God, though the Holy Spirit gets bad press sometimes. This is what he's doing here. The wonderful works of God. There's no message. They're not preaching in the Spirit. They're praising in the Spirit, talking to the Lord, the wonderful works of God, wondrous works of God. Only other time Luke uses it is in the Magnificat, when Mary, in Luke chapter 1, verse 49, talks about the great things God has done in her life. That's the wondrous works, same phrase. They're speaking the wondrous works of God, and they were all amazed, it says and were in doubt, troubled, saying one to another, what meaneth this? We say, what is that all about? They said, what meaneth this? Same thing. What in the world is going on? But others mocking. Now, just Christians, you aren't going to go away from this. When God is moving, something genuine is happening, his spirit is working in your life, you're going to have some people around you realize something real is going on here. What the heck is this? What meaneth this? But you're going to have other folks who under the same conviction can't face the fact that something real is going on and they will always be mockers. And we're surrounded with them today. They know they don't have anything. They know how empty they are. They know how empty drugs have left them, too many dead, and alcohol, and money, and their gender crisis. All of these things, and people are so empty and so beat up. Some of them respond and say, all right, what's this all about? Something's cooking here. I know it. I don't know what it is. Others are going to mock. That's all they can do. They would, that's their safety mechanism. That's their defense. They would rather do that. It says here, they were troubled. What meaneth this? Others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. The, the Greek word there is glucose, where we get glucose from. Uh, it was a particularly sweet form of wine. It was fermented more easily because of the level of sugar in it. Uh, there's a whole interesting study where they would actually take pitch and put it on the inside of a container and put this type of wine. My wife would never drink out of something that was lined with pitch, but the, the Israelis had no problems with that. And it fermented more quickly somehow because of the container that it was in. And Peter says, these men are not drunk as you suppose because it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Now we read that and think... I know people who are drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning. You know, I think I may have been. I can't remember. You know, but you understand, these are Jews. These are religious Jews. Devout Jews are from all over the world. And Leviticus told them that they weren't to eat or to drink before the morning sacrifice. And they didn't drink they, they drank grape juice without alcohol 
at a point during the day, but they never drank real wine, which they cut with water, unless they drank it with meat and it was at dinner. And the Talmud, the Targums, Leviticus says you shouldn't be drinking in the morning. You shouldn't be eating meat early like that. So when Peter says, what are you talking about? These guys are not drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. They all understood exactly what he was saying and what he was talking about. And it's so interesting here. It says, Peter standing up with the 11. You guys got that? So Matthias is definitely one of the 12. This is long before Paul saved. Peter standing up with the 11 lifted up his voice and now he's not going to speak in tongues he's going to speak in Aramaic but the word said there is a particular word that means that he proclaimed or spoke forth so this is prophetic Peter didn't have a three-point sermon he didn't have a five-point sermon he wasn't sitting around saying oh this is a good point let me write this down I'll put this in my outline none of that's going on Peter, whatever language he had been speaking during the process, switches to his own language now, Aramaic, which a lot of them knew, at least partially, and Peter began to preach in Aramaic, and the idea is he spoke forth, this is he's filled with the Spirit. He's proclaiming. There's a prophetic gift that's functioning here as this takes place, and and we're always amazed at Peter's knowledge of the Old Testament, the things that come to him, but says, Peter, standing up with the eleven, he lifted up his voice, and the Spirit is giving him this utterance, and said, spoke forth, proclaimed unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, they would be certainly the ones who knew Aramaic, be this known unto you, and hearken, which is an idea of yield or obey, hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour. It is only nine o'clock in the morning. And Peter is admitting here that alcohol does have an effect over people. That's why Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 5, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be ye being filled with the Holy Spirit. It is a present imperative that's passive. Paul says, Be ye being, that's continual, it's a present tense. We need to continually be filled. It's not a suggestion, it's imperative. You must continually be being filled, and it's passive. You ain't the one who does it. Somebody else is filling you. That's wonderful. You might be trying to fill yourself with wine. He said, don't do that. But here, Peter says, in this place, you know, Paul there, Peter says here, yeah, alcohol affects people, but they're not acting like this because they're under the influence of alcohol. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, where we'll have to go into that next week. Let me, I'm going to have Tommy come up with it. We'll, we'll, we want to worship a bit here. But these are not drunken, as you suppose. This is only the third hour. And then he says, this is that. And he goes to the scripture. And you always have to have a biblical reason for what you're doing in the church. You can't just do something and say, well, the Lord told me to do it. I, I get around people like that. Well, the Lord told me. Well, the Lord told me. You know, once in a while it's nice. I think the Lord a few times has told me things. A um, friend of mine was spending some time with Billy Graham, and, and he said to Billy Graham, you know, has the Lord ever really spoken to you? And he said, you know, one time years ago, I was really troubled, and I was up early, and I was walking in the woods here in Montreat by the, by the place, and I really got a peace about the situation. I think the Lord spoke to me then. But you got these other people, like, they don't need a Bible. They got an antenna. They got a direct connection. They got an uplink. Well, the Lord told me. The Lord told me. And you don't want to discourage them. You know, that's a wonderful thing. God does speak to us. But there's a lot of troublemakers do the same thing. The Lord told me. The Lord told me. The Lord told me. Peter says, no, Joel, 
said this, and this is why we're doing what we're doing, because the scripture tells us. So, if the Lord tarries, we'll pick up next week with Peter's sermon. My encouragement to you this week would be this. If you want the gift of tongues, pray for that. Ask God for it. He who speaks an unknown tongue giveth thanks unto God. Speaketh unto God, not unto men. If you feel like you just want that in your prayer language to be able to praise him and speak his wondrous works, then I would encourage you to do that. If you have a heart for the broken, and maybe God has given you the, the gift of mercy, pray for that. I, I think we should all just say, Lord, whatever gifts you've given me, let them come forth. 120 in the upper room, they weren't all apostles. Paul's going to say, are all apostles, are all pastors, do all have the gift of healing, do all have the gift of tongues? The rhetorical questions, obviously not. It's like you can't have every, every organ in the body can't be a thyroid gland. Thyroid gland here, thyroid gland here, thyroid gland here, thyroid gland here, thyroid gland here. It would be, it would be bad, trust me, because they burnt mine out a number of years ago. Yeah, that would not be good. Uh, but every joint, every ligament supplies, it's, it's the beauty, the tapestry of the body of Christ through the Holy Spirit that makes the body healthy. So I'm going to encourage you to do this. Let's, uh, if anybody can find Tommy, send him here, send him out here. Let's uh, take one person that's near you and, and have that person pray for you for a fresh filling of the Spirit, whoever it is, and I want you to pray for them that God would give to them a fresh filling of the Spirit. Look at the days we're living in. Look at the days we're living in. You know, Again, I, I think of the people that have passed on, some of the great men and women of God. You know, Wearsby's gone and Chuck is gone and Billy Graham is gone and you know, just there's a whole slew of them, and, and they affected a generation. And if they're handing us the baton, and we're going to take that in the strength of the flesh, it is bad. We need the leading and the filling of God's Holy Spirit to face the days that we're facing. Amen? Grab somebody. I'm going to grab you. I've been waiting to see you for a long time. And... and uh, Pray for that person to be filled with the Spirit. Let them pray for you. Look, we're going to study through this. We don't want just to be an intellectual exercise. We want to be looking at it saying, okay, Lord, I see that. And Peter's going to say, these things are happening by the Spirit until the great day of the Lord comes, when the sun is darkened and the moon turns to blood. He sees these things functioning all the way up to the days that we're living in. So let's take a minute, pray for one another, then Tommy will use this song when I'm done praying for him. Let's all stand.